Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Here in New York, alongside Tom Keen and myself, Tom Porcelli, RBC Capital Markets Chief. U.S. economist. Good morning to you, Tom. Good to be with you, as I always. actually think the chairman had a really decent performance in that news conference he, yesterday. Your view, please. He did, and, and, and I love how you say it in sort of a surprising way. <laughs> I was surprised. <laughs> I think we all were. Um, but I think that also drives home uh, that he, he has done a, a mediocre job uh, in his previous press conferences, uh, um, and that's maybe being being kind. No, I, I think he sort of, I think he nailed nailed the messaging. I, I think he's sort of cognizant that um, e- even if they do get one more cut in before the end of the year, um, that that's probably it. Uh, and so I think he has, in that context, then he actually has to start to pivot back toward, hey, by the way, and we think things are actually pretty decent in the United States. And I think that's pretty much what he did. So I would say he actually nailed it. The reason that I was surprised is that it's so difficult to find a central view of a really fractured, divided committee and then go into the news conference and try and communicate that. I actually think he did a solid job of that. I think that if we'd just heard from Chairman Powell yesterday, the market probably would have taken it much more dovishly (laughs) because we've all got very preoccupied with the dispersion and the dot plot. RBC's got a really interesting take on that. I'll just go through the consensus view and then you can push back a little bit. There is a view that the next meeting is going to be really difficult to get through a rate cut because if you look at the dot plot, the Fed looks really divided. Yep. You've got a different take about the next meeting specifically. Just walk us through that. Yeah. So, so one, thank you for the plug. Uh, and and two, yeah. So I think I think this is this is. I mean, I think the dot plot is confusing in a lot of regards. Um, but here's here's one of them. Um, what you're seeing is what all 17 people think, but not all 17 people vote. Right. So I think it's critical to know where the voters are. And actually, what we would say is if you look at the composition of voters today, um, you know, sort of for this year, uh, it's really skewed toward toward the doves. So when you look at the dot plot, um, you see that there are seven uh, members that are looking for another cut. Um, before the end of the year. So when you go through then who the voters are, it's really easy to assign um, a dove to each one of those seven voters looking for a cut. So uh, for the, by the end of the year. So we would actually say at this juncture, um, it's probably another sort of seven to two vote for, for a cut before the end of the year. And, and I would think that the market, the equity market would take obviously some, some comfort in that since they seem to think that cuts are going to help the backdrop. I, I have serious questions about that, but... I thought it was fascinating in the broader the tension that I felt, and this was between Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock and Scott Minard of Guggenheim, is we got QE going, QE1, QE Infinity over in Europe, et cetera. Yep. The balance sheet's come out, and then the balance sheet's supposed to come in, but now we're hearing, no, the balance sheet is not going to come in. Explain the ramifications to our listeners if the Fed balance sheet doesn't come in as we expected a number of years ago. So, so sorry to repeat exactly what I said to you on, on TV a little while ago. Look, I wasn't awake then, so, <laughs> so I'll say it again. Um, the, 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 this is not a, it's not a guess, right? Like the, 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 the Fed is, is absolutely going to start purchasing assets again. And it, it's not going to be QE. It's, and it's not even going to really be QE light. It's something very different than that. So what, what's basically happening is the Fed needs to hold reserves um, at, at some, some level. Right now, they're at what, about 1.45. So the, the, the question is, um, at, 
can it go much lower? And the reality is they, they probably can't because once they start, once reserves start to go much lower, um, you actually start to see a lot of volatility. And so what's uh, in, in front end markets. So it was very interesting what happened over the last couple of days. Um, we think that while we don't think that this was uh, an issue where reserves have shrunk so much um, that it created this issue, we think it was something else, uh, not, not a non-systemic mm -hmm. uh, event. Um, we think it spooked the hell out of the Fed. And that's why yeah. Powell yesterday basically yeah. said, hey, by the way, we are now in earnest going to have a conversation about making sure that we hold the level right. of reserves roughly where it is. And, and sorry, just the one last quick thing. Please. The reason why all of this is happening is because of the relentless rise in currency growth. Right. So currency growth in the context of um, assets that have uh, been slowing means that you actually destroy right. reserves. Um, so you need to hold reserves at a certain uh, at a roughly this level. And that's exactly what the Fed is going to do. But by the way, it's a really critical idea. I mean, I think this whole idea is being completely uh, um, underappreciated. And, and John, this is important in the backdrop of Michael Clority at RBC Capital Markets who's been doing this for a few years. Tom, nothing new about this. Before yeah. the financial crisis, this is what used to happen right. quite, quite regularly. And yes. are we forgetting what this used to look like? Are we yeah. defining Federal Reserve actions just by the post-crisis period almost exclusively? That if it's an expanding balance sheet, it must be. Yeah, we? I, I, think that's, I think that's exactly right. I, I mean, you know, you know in, in, in the old days, we, you know, we used to call these coupon passes or bill passes. I mean, and that's effectively what, what they're going to be at this point. So, yeah, I do. I, I think that we all need to reorientate our, our thinking in this regard because, the, again, the reality is um, in an environment where there is significant amount for reserves because of, and again, there's not enough time to go through all the mechanics of this, but, you know, from a regulatory perspective, regulation has become punitive on banks. And so banks need to hold um, some sort of, you know, sort of high quality asset and the high quality asset that banks are deciding to hold in, in the name of regulation are reserves. Um, and so uh, the, the reserve demand today is materially more than it has ever been at any other time in history. Yesterday got slightly technical at times. The focus, of course, was on the dispersion amongst Federal Reserve policymakers. The chairman, I think we all agree, did a decent job of trying to bring some of this together. I would say it was like herding cats and he did OK. Yeah. What we didn't really talk about in the news conference yesterday was the assessment of where the labor market is, where the general economy yeah. is. I think there were some complaints yesterday, Good and perhaps point. you can blame the journalists. The only time the labor market was really discussed <laughs> was around morale on the FOMC. I just have a nightmare. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine, Tom Persoli, can you imagine John Farrow in the press conference? <laughs> it would no. be. Actually, I would love that. It's a real, can you get in there? No, he's very frightened. Go. Go Governor Carney wasn't too happy about oh, some really? of the questions I'm shocked. I'm I absolutely love, shocked to learn that. I, I would love that. Yeah, look, I, I think I think that you know sort of the 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 beaming bright light uh, that is the sort of the consumer that is the labor market. It, yeah, I don't think there was a lot of attention given to it, but but maybe that's why, right? Because I think at this point, like I sincerely hope it is a foregone conclusion that we all appreciate. It's it's really rock solid in every way. I want to wrap things up with the bond market just quickly. There's a take from a lot of people in fixed income that this Federal Reserve is not going quick enough, not going hard enough. Yeah. And the evidence of that is just looking at the yield curve. They cut yeah. rates, the curve doesn't steepen, yeah. it flattens. What's your take on that, Tom? You know, we, we and we've been we've been pretty clear on this uh, in in much of our written research over it feels like many months now at this point. The, the reality behind the curve uh, and why ten year yields in particular are so ridiculously low is because we have negative rates around the world. Um, so if you want to pick up some yield, you're you're coming here. I mean, uh, you know, this is such a, a well worn story at this point. I sincerely hope that everyone sort of is very appreciative of this. I'll I'll, I'll make one other comment that that maybe is completely underappreciated, um, and that is if you look at um, ten year yields relative to nominal 
growth. There's a very symbiotic relationship there, right? Like um, one is a reflection of the other. Uh, that's not happening right now, where nominal yields yeah. are basically sort of, uh, or excuse me, a nominal growth is you know, relatively elevated, and ten-year yields are obviously well, which way is that going to cut? Yeah. So what I think is, well, I don't, I don't think that they necessarily do converge. I think that they probably remain pretty wide because of what's happening from a global perspective. Um, that again, that's a really important idea. So ten-year yields are not even a reflection of growth, which is what they are supposed to be in the United States, and that's not happening right now. So I think as a result, you can be mm. dismissive of the curve. Tom, great to catch up with you. So Thank much you. for your time this Thanks, morning. Guys. We appreciate Tom, it. Tom Porcelli of RBC Capital Markets. Twenty-two years ago, it was read cover to cover. 274 pages, securities lending, repurchase agreements. Frank Fabozzi, one of the books that Ira Jersey read so he could be smarter than us on the repo market. The repo market, John, just doesn't do justice to the importance and sophistication of the overnight trust market. It's fantastic to have Ira Jersey with us, it Bloomberg is. Intelligence Chief, U.S. Interest Rate Strategist. Quite clearly, Ira, there's been some difficulties over the last week. Are you confident the Fed now has control of them? Yeah, I do. I, I think they were going to abate anyway, starting after today, um, just because a lot of the uh, a lot of the pressures that kind of caused the indigestion within the the treasury and mortgage funding market is would would just naturally go away. Um, but but you know the Fed came in with a couple of operations. They're going to do another operation today, and I think that they're providing just enough liquidity in order to uh, in yeah. order to get things back to. I don't want to call it normal because it, there's still going to be somewhat elevated mm-hmm. pressures this morning, but. But it's going to be, you know, significantly, uh, significantly better than it was on Monday and Tuesday. Okay, Ira, you're testifying to Congress. I'm the ugly congressman, and I'm dumb as wood. They're spending our money, seventy-five billion dollars, and they could be from where are you the from? Wherever, all fifty states, all fifty states are saying seventy-five billion times three. They're spending our money. Reply to that. Uh, in 1913, the Congress gave the Federal Reserve the right to control the money supply, and that's exactly what we're doing. So, and and that is what what the Federal Reserve. Are we doing, expanding right? so. the money supply or contracting it? Well, so, so ironically, it that's contra- my Cudlow question. It, so it contracted significantly on Monday and Tuesday, and that's the reason why we have this issue. So it contracted by about two hundred billion dollars on Monday and Tuesday, and you know the Federal Reserve is just adding back a little bit of that money, so uh, just enough, quite frankly, in order to, to calm things down. I can't wait for the emails after this segment. Will, <laughs> will Milton Friedman approve of this? I mean, go take go back to Monitors 101, MOM1. Good morning, yeah, Lawrence yeah, wh- Kudlow. I know he's listening in Washington. Well, the, the, the world's a little bit different now than when Friedman did most of his good work. Uh, you know, so one of the big things, obviously, is that we have a an environment where bank balance sheets are constrained now, like they weren't until after 1991 and the implementation of some of the Basel Capital Rules. And those have just gotten stricter and stricter yeah, and stricter. Yeah. And because of that, you can't uh, the banks can't print money the way that they used to before. And that's basically what they yeah. used to do when you would, uh, you know, you get a loan, and that's how fractional banks 
banking works. You get a loan from a bank, and uh, that that is then deposited somewhere else, and other people make other loans based on that money. And so, yeah. so, so, but that money multiplier is not the same as it was prior to the implementation of the mo- most recent Basel Capital Rules. And and what that's done is made for these periods of very tight money supply and uh, and and challenges in the funding market. So, so and, the... and that's the simplest way I can really explain. No, it, it was brilliantly. I flunked the exam. You passed it. Congratulations, John Farrell. That's true in Europe too. I mean, they're under Basel as well, right? Yeah. I want to talk about the bond market just quickly to wrap things up, Ira. There are several transmission mechanisms for monetary policy, and one is just the communication channel. And when you start to get a certain level of dissent and division, I just wonder to what degree the communication channel is getting backed up by that now, Ira. And that might be at least one part of the reason why we're seeing a flatter yield curve and not a steeper one after what was really a dovish performance from the chairman and another rate cut. Well, I, I think that it wasn't quite as dovish as some people in the market had expected, and that's one reason why you saw the front end of the yield curve sell off yesterday. And we we basically priced out another half of a cut over the next uh, over the next nine months. So you know the the market is saying, okay, now we know that there's some hawks on the committee. We had two dissenters uh, who didn't want to cut. We had one dissenter who wanted to cut more. Um, so you know there's this big dispersion that we're not used to in terms of communication policy. So um, so. So I think that is going to continue to confuse yeah. the markets a little bit, but it might also bring back some optionality uh, yeah. for, for the Fed to have more of an announcement effective when, when and if they do cut again. We've been making jokes about it, but you and Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income have just killed it over the last couple of days, making Thanks, me Tom. smarter Our, thank as you. well. Mr. Jersey there on the repurchase agreement market, also known as the REP. I've learned a lot the last couple of days. So have I. Laurence Boone knows how sensitive I am. She's a chief economist at OECD after sterling career on Global Wall Street. Take your huge shoes to fill with Catherine Mann and Laurence Boone joins us today. And Laurence Boone simply shakes the global economic system with some really tough economic forecasts for various nations. Let's start with a grand picture, Laurence. 3% was my metric for global recession. Are we going to end up in global recession? Well, what we're saying um, is that the global growth is slowing down and it's slowing down to 2.9% in 2019 and 3 mm-hmm. in 2020, which is the lowest growth rate since the financial <clears throat> crisis. Um, and we're worried that this situation is becoming right. entrenched. As you know, in America, there's a squeeze to a terminal value, a new lower rate. Michael Faroli, among others at J.P. Morgan, has been very good on this. Do you have in your head what the global terminal value is off of that traditional 3% benchmark? Is the terminal value 2.9 or could it be south of that? Actually, if if governments do not act, um, if we could, if we continue to rely solely on monetary policy, it's going to be difficult to put a break on this sliding of of growth. Uh, which is why what we're saying, you know, is is use the other, move gear, move into fiscal gear, and start reverting this slowdown that we're seeing in growth. 
Lawrence, let's talk about where the slowdown is coming from predominantly. Where do you see that in Europe, in China? Where's it coming specifically? Where's the biggest headwind, the biggest drag right now? Well, it's pretty much broad-based, and we have revised down both the advanced economies and the emerging market economies in the G20, because what's happening, the primary cause of this slowdown and this acceleration of slowdown is the rising uncertainty linked to the trade conflict. You know, it's been US-China, it's expanding in terms of products being targeted, it may be moving to US-EU, it's also happening between Japan and Korea. So trade restrictions are mounting and with it uncertainty. And the logical natural consequence is that production and investments are going down. So that is the analysis. Let's get to the policy prescription. You talked about governments doing more. There's a belief on this side of the Atlantic, increasingly so, that the Germans are about to do fiscal stimulus. What's your read on things in Europe at the moment, Lawrence? Are we finally drifting away to have a more optimal kind of policy mix where monetary policy is there supportive and yet the governments are doing their bit as well? So that's exactly what we would like to see, monetary policy supportive, continuing to be supportive like it is, and government actually moving. You know, we have a glimpse of hope because we've seen two days ago that in the Netherlands, the government, uh, when publishing the draft 2020 budget, was actually announcing a 1% of GDP fiscal support um, quiet, well-targeted towards investment, and in addition that it will publish some detail on a massive investment yeah. fund. So maybe we're getting there. Well, maybe we're getting there, and I understand there's political niceties there, and you don't want to criticize any of your members of the OECD, but we really need some fiscal courage. Is the institutional structure there for fiscal courage, or is it base, basically based on because that's terrible English. I'm sorry, Lawrence. I should do this in French, but that would be worse. Is it is it based on we got to have a crisis before we get fiscal stimulus? So I, I hope that's not the case. And we actually have the institutional framework that would allow uh, a euro area fiscal stance to be a lot more supportive than what we are seeing now. But I think it's also at the national level that we need to see something move on. You know, you we have the external demand shock, that's trade, but we also have in some countries, and that includes Netherlands and Germany, an investment backlog in a number of network infrastructure. And those countries, with an S, have quite low debt and, and large fiscal space. So they, they should be moving ahead. I think it's for government uh, to decide to do so. As they are reluctant to, at least so far and in recent history, Laurence, the central bank has been left doing even more. We've got to the point in the minds of many that perhaps we've reached the so-called reversal rate, where monetary policy has started to become counterproductive. What is the OECD's assessment of that right now, Laurence? So what we've been saying and, and what I will keep on saying actually is, you know, central banks are some kind of hero. They've lifted us out of what could have been a terrible depression and deflation. But they've been doing the job uh, largely alone. So now they've set financial condition on mm. a quite predictable path with very low rate. And it's really up to fiscal authority to make a move. Really. Laurence Boone in the Pacific Rim, and again, folks, the reach of the OECD is far more than the traditional perspective of Europe and America. On the Pacific Rim, 
Explain the economic flows between a 5.x percent growing China and the adjacent nations. What does this matter for Singapore or a heavily peopled Indonesia or, of course, getting all the visibility right now, Vietnam? What sub 6% China mean to those countries? So that's a super interesting question. And I think there are um, two, two ways, uh, two angles I'd like to address it with. Please. The, first, the first one is, uh, and I'm sure you had that in your mind, actually, is the trade conflict is that diverting trade. Um, and there it's, it's the fact that we are seeing exports sort of really surging in Vietnam. So there is some trade diversion. But, and, and the value chain is quite well integrated in Asia, but from some, for some sophisticated products, it will take longer to reallocate some of the value chain. So mm -hmm. that, that's one thing. The other, which perhaps is, is even more important, uh, is effectively that China is slowing down and it's rebalancing its economy away from export, capital goods, uh, driven type of construction towards something that, to an economy that's right. more consumer oriented. And that means, you know, less demand for commodities and capital goods, mm -hmm. which may affect some countries in you Asia. Know, we could go on for hours. This is an important report from the OECD, a real caution to it. Laurent Spoon, their chief economist in Paris. Thank you, Thank Laurence. you. Why don't you bring in the esteemed Greg Peters? Like 18 ways oh, to go thanks. here. Always with thanks. Greg Peters. Thanks for letting we me can bring go, him in. We can go with him nominal or we can go why don't, real. Why don't, you, why don't you just tell me what I should ask as my first question? I, I would ask about 10-year yield with a migration of vector out below 0%. Based Greg on Peters, can you tell me about 10-year yield based on a vector out of what? 0%? To 0%. Based on what? Did you get all that, Greg? I, uh, well, you know, I always kind of catch half of what uh, Tom is asking. But, That's good. But no, but Greg, I mean, seriously, you're Greg, your char Greg, lower. your charm is you're actually in the market. I mean, there's economists <laughs> economizing where you're actually like with PGM worried about price and yield. Can we get price up enough on the 10-year yield to bring the 10-year yield down under 1% and dare I say down to a negative yield? Jerome Powell said yesterday, no. Yeah, I, I would. I think a negative yield is somewhat heroic. I, uh, you know, we have lots of room to run before we get there. But I think uh, uh, the path is lower, um, and and I'm not suggesting it's lower over the next day or week. But I think uh, the path over the you know next uh, several years is definitely lower. And just to oversimplify, do uh, do you see central bank? changing and increasing rates and taking away accommodation anytime soon? And I think the answer to that is no. And if the answer is no, absent any inflation or stellar growth, I just see rates continuing to plummet. So, Greg, we've talked lower. about this on this program a few times, and I've talked about it with you a few times as well, and I'd love to bring it up again. Something's changed. When the central bank used to ease, it used to lead to a steepening of the yield curve. It used to recalibrate, revitalize growth expectations and inflation expectations further out. That doesn't seem to be happening this time around, Greg. The curve seems to be flattening. Just walk us through why you think that dynamic has shifted 10 years later. 
Yeah, so I think it's really around the fact that the efficacy of central bank policy is viewed to be quite de minimis. Um, and uh, and honestly, uh, I don't think the market believes that lower rates, more QE leads to greater growth uh, or actually leads to higher inflation. And so without that, there's no rationale for the curve to steepen out. And so in the olden days, i.e. previous cycles, you had a situation where right. um, you know central banks are to ease, and, and, and that created uh, inflation expectations moving higher. Uh, uh, and mm-hmm. you're not getting that this time. Uh, and so I think the market's feedback is, you know, while it wants more accommodation from a central bank perspective, the market's also telling you that it really does very little to the objective of right. getting inflation and growth higher. If you're just joining us, Greg Peters with us with P. Jimin. The hallmark of Peters' work is really, really sophisticated research notes, including the model efficient frontier. Light reading, John, <laughs> as we move forward. You have a phenomenal scatterdot chart, Greg Peters, and the y-axis is what everybody wants with their yield, and that is excess return. Where's the sweet spot right now to garner excess return given these historic times? Yeah, so I think uh, what we're ultimately trying to achieve in our portfolio as a PGM and the total return bond fund uh, is really uh, you know, getting uh, – Get, getting properly rewarded for the risk, ultimately, right? And so in fixed income, we think of, uh, of the world in excess returns, i.e. hedged out duration. Um, and so the way we see it is we see a tremendous amount of value in the structured product space. We think that's uh, fundamentally mispriced and misvalued. Um, um, and so that's where we're uh, you know, focusing a lot of our uh, right. investments currently. Uh, and then we still see value uh, out the curve uh, in in high yield bonds and uh, in uh, in particular places. So the way to think about it ultimately, though, is uh, in a portfolio construct. And so when you put them together, that's where the whole market getting pushed up and out the efficient frontier goes. Uh, and so we really like the quote unquote barbell of having high quality AAA structured products. And risk in high yield or emerging right. markets. Right, jargon that, alert. What's a, stuff. what's a structured product? What's a structured product? Well, it's an acronym, uh, so it's like CLOs, so collateralized. Oh, that helps. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, but it's basically it's uh, it's structured form. So you take a pool of assets and you create a capital structure off of it, uh, and you change the risk dynamic depending on uh, what your tolerances are. Uh, and so if uh, an investor wants a lot more risk, they can go deeper down the capital structure. And if you want nice. a lot less risk, you can go up. Uh, and so it ultimately, Tom, has to uh, sum to zero. You can't create value out of nothing, although yeah. Wall Street tries to tell you that sometimes. So it's yeah. a zero-sum game. And so we think because this reach for yield is so dramatic um, at the bottom of the capital structure, uh, that's dramatically overpriced. And therefore, it creates a lot of value on top. John, I'm going to tear up. That was on the edge of Fibosa. That was beautiful, it was Greg. Just beautiful. Let, let's make it even more simple. <clears throat> if you wanted to get exposure to a certain part of the economy, and you did that through a stream of income, an income stream, a pool of assets, whatever it might be, Greg, what is it in the economy right now? What are the sectors in the economy that you're looking to get your exposure to? 
Yeah, so the consumer still is holding on. I know uh, everyone's talking about the strength of the consumer, uh, but uh, but we see a lot more stress um, in um, in the industrial segments. Um, and so you're seeing it play out through trade and other channels. Uh, and so we're really focused on the consumer side, and, and the consumer looks pretty good. They're not nearly as levered as they have been historically. Um, and then related to that, the banking sector continues to look quite good. Uh, and so you could say it's regulation, over-regulation, different risk management, uh, but either way, banks are dramatically different today than they were pre-crisis. And so those are the two areas of main focus, honestly. Greg, a final word on high yield. High yield is approaching the tights of the year. If you look at the Bloomberg Barclays US Corporate High Yield Index, where is it within high yield? Just tap into that and open it up for us just a little bit more. If you want exposure to corporate credit in America within high yield, where are you getting that right now? Yeah, so the high yield market had a really interesting performance this year. And so there's been this massive beta grab, but it hasn't manifested itself in returns in high yield. And so, for example, the higher quality double Bs have uh, really outperformed the triple Cs, as an example. Uh, uh, and so currently, as a result of that, uh, yeah. you can move selectively down to the triple C part of the market and get three and a half times the amount of spread. Uh, and so we really think uh, there's right. some opportunities down there. It's selective, uh, uh, but we right. continue to prefer high yield bonds over levered loans. Is we dog uh, if, is uh, is we dog triple C? You know, eight point eight percent coupon on the six year uh, we company piece. Is that triple C? Uh, I'm not sure actually. Okay, that's Sorry. fair. No, that's fair. I didn't want to catch you unawares, but we were watching it yesterday. <laughs> Greg Peters is always. Thank you so much with PGM again. We protect the copyright of our uh, guest. This is a joy always for Bloomberg surveillance. It has become an autumnal tradition as the chill sets across New York in the autumnal 106.1 FM area. We talk about Harvard football. Of course, Harvard football always on Bloomberg 106.1 FM in Boston. And with our pregame analysis, the coverage against 3.45 p.m. on Saturday, what a joy to speak to Coach Tim Murphy of Harvard football, who will be surrounded this week, road trip, Paul, by the Department of Athletics, the Friends of Harvard Football, the Harvard Alumni Association, the Harvard Club of Southern California, <laughs> the Harvard Club of San Diego, and Harvard Varsity Club is the crimson ghost to San Diego. <laughs> How do you keep the lads, Coach Murphy, focused as they go out to see San Diego? Well, we just finished an early morning practice, the fellas, <laughs> and the last thing I said is, fellas, we're not going on a vacation. Uh, this is a business trip, a take care of a business trip. Yeah. They are focused. We are focused. We're ready to go. And I, can, I, I tell you, I can remember the hockey road trips. There's just something. The road trip's more instructional <laughs> than the sport. So you get on Air Harvard and you fly out there, and it's a huge moment for Harvard, I guess twice in the last decades, to go to San Diego and get it done. In that heat and in that difference in foreignness for these kids, how do they stay focused on the field? What's the trick? I think the trick is that, um, you know, we take great pride. We talk about being road warriors, a team that can go on the road, you know, face adversity and, 
and be successful. And, and one record we're really proud of is, I'm not sure exactly what the number is, but uh, we hold the all-time Ivy League record for winning road consecutive road games. And it takes a little extra focus. You know, it takes a lot of detail, and it takes a lot of really mature kids. So, Coach, tell us about the Harvard team this year. What can your fans see on the field, expect to see on the field? Well, I always preface that question early when you haven't played a game by saying that, you know, we're a bit we're a bit of a blank canvas. And I say that in the context of, you know, unlike the Patriots, we graduate, graduate our Tom Brady's every year. And so you're breaking a lot of new guys in. Uh, we graduated a school record 30 seniors last year. Wow. So wow. There's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of positions that are wide open. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, stuff we still have to get, uh, get accomplished in practice and now in a game. But, the bottom line is that, you know, it happens every year and you have to make that transition to yeah. a little extra big one this year. But we're excited about our team. We've got a lot of good young players. We are a relatively young football team. Uh, we'll be facing a team that obviously is, is a little bit more well-documented. They've already played two games. And, yeah. uh, so I think we know what we're getting into. But I'm, we're, I'm bullish on this football team. We've got a lot of good young players. Yeah. Um, the attitude has been phenomenal. And, and we're ready to play. Uh, Coach, when you kick the ball off, San Diego will have a weapon to receive the ball. His name is Mr. Armistead, and he is better than good. How do you defend against San Diego's star, Mr. Armistead, that will bring the ball upfield? Well, you know, it's a 22-man game. you got 11 starters on offense and defense, and you know, we always talk about everybody's got to do their job. You can't have a weak link. Uh, but he's an outstanding athlete. They've got a lot of big play capability they got a fifth year yeah. quarterback who has done a tremendous job um you know they've got a tremendous speed they've got weapons you know they've a wide receiver obviously who is uh you know a preseason all-american this is a very good football team it's a very good program and to put it into context for you guys they've won 24 consecutive league games they've been to the fcs division one playoffs five consecutive years mm-hmm. even though they've never beaten us this is a really tough physical and well-coached team. Well, I'll try to get you back from San Diego to the uh, climbs of Brown and Harvard next week as well. Uh, Tim Murphy, beginning our coverage of Harvard football. We're so proud to do this. Huge interest uh, we find nationwide for the idea of Ivy League football uh, and a little bit different than the the, the huge programs that are out there. Tim Murphy, of course, Harvard football coach. You can catch San Diego Harvard this weekend. The Crimson at San Diego on Bloomberg 106.1 FM in Boston with pregame coverage starting Saturday at 3.45 as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.